This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, I have a couple important announcements. Kick-Ass Politics is nominated for a 2016 Podcast Award for Best News and Politics Podcast. Voting has already begun, so do me a favor, and while you're listening right now, go to podcastawards.com and click on Kick-Ass Politics under the News and Politics category. Voting ends June 12th, and you can vote once every day. So if you really want to help us out, then take 30 seconds each day between now and June 12th to go to podcastawards.com and vote for Kick-Ass Politics for Best News and Politics Podcast. Also, we're doing a new crowdfunding campaign at patreon.com backslash kickasspolitics. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. With Patreon, you can pledge a certain amount each month, and in return for helping to sustain the show, you're going to get some great new benefits like back episodes, exclusive content, show merchandise, shoutouts on the podcast, video hangouts, invitations to live events, and more. Again, go to patreon.com backslash kickasspolitics. Thanks for your support, and thanks for continuing to listen. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass Politics. My guest today needs no introduction, but I'll give him an introduction anyways. He's General Wesley Clark. General Clark graduated first in his class at West Point and graduated with degrees in philosophy, politics, and economics as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. While serving in Vietnam, he commanded an infantry company in combat when only one month into his command, he was shot four times by a Viet Cong soldier with an AK-47. The wounded Clark continued to shout orders to his men, who counterattacked and defeated the Viet Cong force. Having received the Silver Star and the Combat Infantryman Badge for his actions during that encounter and fulfilled his five-year commitment, he continued on in the military, commanding at the battalion, brigade, and division level, and served in a number of significant staff positions, including as Director of Strategic Plans and Policy during the war in Bosnia. General Clark's 38 years of military service culminated in his being appointed NATO commander and supreme allied commander in Europe, where he led NATO forces to victory in Operation Allied Force during the war in Kosovo, eventually saving 1.5 million ethnic Albanians from genocide. In 2004, General Clark ran for the Democratic nomination for president and today he's a senior fellow at the Burkle Center for International Relations at UCLA. He's co-chairman of Growth Energy, an ethanol lobbying group, and chairman and CEO of Wesley K. Clark & Associates, an international consulting firm that specializes in business development, crisis support, and strategic communications. He's the author of three books, Waging Modern War, Bosnia, Kosovo, and the Future of Combat, Winning Modern War, Iraq Terrorism and the American Empire, and A Time to Lead, for Duty, Honor, Country. He's been awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, Defense Distinguished Service Medal, the Silver Star, the Bronze Star, and the Purple Heart. On today's podcast, General Wesley Clark will talk about his experience in Vietnam, 
and what strategic mistakes were made during that war. He'll talk about leading the Allied campaign during the war in Kosovo, his first impressions from meeting Serbian leader Slavodan Milosevic, and how Milosevic was able to escape justice for his war crimes. Plus, he'll talk about the war in Iraq, the 2016 election, rethinking the traditional organization of our military, and giving greater strategic responsibility to the soldier on the ground. Coming up with General Wesley Clark in just a moment. To Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. I'm joined today by General Wesley Clark. Uh, General Clark, thanks for joining me on the show. Great to be with you, Ben. First, I'm curious, what made you want to get into the military going all the way back when you joined West Point? What was it that appealed to you about that? The United States of America was under threat. It's what we knew, what we heard on the evening news what we read in the newspapers. There was a threat from the Soviet Union. There was a threat from communism. It was a military threat. It was an ideological threat. It was a very personalized threat. Uh, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev actually came to a farm in Iowa in 1959, and he said to, to the American people on worldwide media, he said, we communists will bury you. Well, I grew up in a very patriotic part of America, and we took statements like that personally, and uh, with the launch of Sputnik and uh, the resurgence of American interest in science, and I just uh, I felt really motivated to go to West Point. I thought it'd be a great education too. Yeah, and you ended up serving in Vietnam. You were wounded. You were I think I read somewhere that you were shot in four different places. That's right. Yeah, I caught a burst. <laughs> yeah, that must have smarted, I imagine. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. It depends on where you're hit. And I was lucky. I was turning just as the man in the, <clears throat> I guess he was in a bunker. He fired and uh, the bullets stitched up the right side of my body. But had I not turned, uh, I, I, I probably wouldn't be here today. Yeah. Was that probably the scariest moment for you of your life? Hard to say. I never thought of it that way, actually. Or was it um, when you ran for president? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a challenge. But um, I think the, th the thing that um, what happens in combat when you get shot is that your reflexes kick in, all of your training, all of your motivation inside. And there's a part of your mind that uh, part of my mind said, uh, gee, I really would rather not be here right now. The bullets were whizzing by and kicking up dirt and I could hear them cracking by my head, uh, but they didn't hit me. And, um, and I've thought about my four-month-old son, who I'd never seen. Uh, but then those thoughts are suppressed, and you get about your duty, and you do what you have to do. Um, after that, you ended up uh, commanding Company C, 6th Battalion in Vietnam. I called—I'd uh, been a company commander in Vietnam, and uh, we successfully completed the engagement, um, and I was medevac from the field, and— the military personnel center called and said, Captain Clark, you got to show us you can command a company. I said, well, I, I've done one in peacetime and one in combat. They said, do another one. So they sent me to Fort <laughs> Knox, Kentucky. I commanded C Company, 6th Battalion, 32nd Armor. And it was a company of all Vietnam returnees, uh, most of whom had been wounded. Wow. 
And we worked 40 days straight at one point that summer of 1970. And uh, they, th- these people, they only worked for pride. They worked for discipline. They worked for their own dignity. They didn't want to stay in the military. And uh, they weren't lifers by any sense. And it wasn't that they were particularly proud of Vietnam. They just worked for what who they were, each other, what they believed in, what they stood for as individuals. And I loved them. You said that that's what made you want to stay in the military after your five-year commitment, huh? That's right. Because when you see people that way, ordinary people, people without high school educations in some cases, people who've been, my armor couldn't walk without a cane. And, uh, and yet he was there seven days a week. And um, my, my parts clerk in the motor pool, he was a draftee from New York City, Strumwasser, had an IQ of 160. He told everybody how to run the motor pool. He was only a, a specialist, you know, but uh, the sergeants listened to him because he was very smart. Uh, he wasn't going to stay in the Army, but these were great Americans, and they served their country well. I was proud to be with them. Yeah, pretty inspiring stuff. Sounds like a special group of guys. Um, well, after that, you went to Command and General Staff College, and you graduated with a thesis on American policies and gradualism in the Vietnam War. As someone who lived through it and later commanded a war, what were we getting wrong in Vietnam? Well, we didn't have a strategy for winning. And we couldn't see it as clearly from the perspective of 1974-75 when I wrote that thesis. But in, uh, you know, it's been almost, uh, it's been 50 years uh, practically since the Vietnam War. It's been 50 years since uh, the American troops went in there. And it's clear in retrospect as people have written the journals and the presidential libraries have been opened up and so forth. President Lyndon Johnson never had a strategy to win in Vietnam. That's simply wrong to ask men to go and fight and die without a winning strategy at the top. And if the generals can't produce it, you either fire the generals or you don't go in. And uh, as commander-in-chief, you have to know enough to know what it is you should be doing. And I'm curious if you see applications for that in Iraq. And Well, yes and no. Uh, I think the war in Iraq was uh, one of the it's probably the greatest strategic blunder America's ever made because we failed to know what would happen next. We failed to want to know what would happen next. Now, um, some people said it'll be just like the liberation of France. Um, they'll be out there just like at the Arc de Triomphe. They'll be welcoming <laughs> you and cheering. But there was no Charles de Gaulle to take over. There was no leadership, and we banished whatever leadership there might have been uh, when we disbanded the army and eliminated Baathists from government, and we turned the society upside down. We turned it over to Iranian-backed elements uh, that had been actually, many of them, in, uh, in, in refuge in Iran during the, the uh, war of 1980-88 between Iraq and Iran. And so these people had their own axes to grind, their own motivations, and they weren't about to create a Western-oriented democracy. They didn't understand it. It wasn't their culture, and we didn't have a plan for what to do next, and uh, the society disintegrated into civil war, and it became a breeding ground for terrorism, and we're still living with the consequences today. So you have to know what you're going to do, what the political end state is, and how you will get there. 
you don't always have to go in with overwhelming force and a knockout blow. Uh, That won't work against ISIS because, again, with ISIS, you have to know what replaces ISIS in that region. What's the governance? And ISIS is a geostrategic artifact. It's there because Sunni powers, principally Turkey, but also Saudi Arabia and Qatar, they're not comfortable with Iran controlling Iraq and Syria and Lebanon. They don't want that. And ISIS is a manifestation of their concern. They've given it some assistance indirectly. Uh, There may be some liaison with it. Uh, And it's also served, frankly, the purposes of of Bashar al-Assad, whose strategy, his strategy in the war against those who would replace him in Syria has been to eliminate all moderate opposition so that the world faces a clear choice, either heinous evil or him. Right, right. (laughs) So, so, you know, these are complicated political undergirdings, which have to be you have to understand the political dynamics of the system and the society that you're going into before you use military force, and you have to calibrate that force. So war is like, each war is like its own chess game. The pieces have certain moves, but the game is different, and you can't necessarily uh, do the same opening, and uh, take the same enemy bishop in the same sequence in one game after another. And during the first Gulf War, you were training troops at Fort Irwin, and you trained quite a few National Guard brigades, and multiple generals credited you with successfully training a new generation of the military that have moved past Vietnam-era strategy. What was it that you were teaching that next generation? Well, I think a couple of things. Number one is we really taught a process of honesty and integrity in military operations so that you plan in detail an operation. You think it through. You rehearse it, crawl, walk, run. And then when it's over, you critique it. You do an after-action review, and you're your own harshest critic. We taught that kind of honesty, and uh, and that was a big step. We also So there was a lot of experimentation then. Well— not experimentation, yes, but training and getting it down and finding exactly out what right. doesn't work. A-B you're exactly testing, right. And, so it, and it varies from unit to unit, and it varies from commander to commander, and obviously from situation to situation. We taught that thought process. In other words, rather than trying to stamp units out in a mold and say each unit must perform exactly the same way, must do everything exactly the same, which is the way that the Soviet Army trained its forces in World War II and afterwards, so that there was no flexibility mm-hmm. at the tactical level. We were training tactical flexibility. Why? Because in a democracy, when you're fighting, your most precious asset is the individual soldier. You can't waste men and women's lives on the battlefield following some drill. You have to use your best judgment, your best experience. You need to have drills but they need to be applicable. There's no one-size-fits-all. Wars are won at the bottom. They're lost at the top. And uh, I think it's the same in American society. I think it's the same in politics. You can have a great commander, but if his troops can't shoot straight, if the 
mechanics can't repair the equipment, if the communicators can't work the code books, then you don't have an effective force. It doesn't matter what the IQ of the commander is. Over the course of this experimentation with the United States Army in the 1980s, we discovered that the real secret to winning was at the bottom and that therefore you got much greater return on your investment by training at the bottom, by equipping the soldiers at the bottom. It's a hard thing to tell people. They, they want to buy more tanks. They don't want to buy more training. Right. But uh, they want glitzy aircraft. They don't want the communications so that the pilot sees the target. Yeah. But when you actually got down and looked at the effectiveness of it, if you could put steel on target, if your soldiers could locate the enemy with telescopic sights, if they could accurately shoot 300 meters and beyond, if your tanks, if each man in the crew had a separate sector of observation, the discipline to stay with it, and the training to really operate that weapon system the way it's supposed to, you would win even against a numerically superior force and even against a better equipped force. And we saw it again and again and again on the desert battlefield. When you say that only soldiers can win battles, it may take years before that penetrates into the procurement, organizational design, training, and education of a force. But it did penetrate. And when you look at our forces today in Iraq or Afghanistan, you look at the way they line up, you look at the incredible admiration we have for our special operations forces, the Navy SEALs and Army's Delta, that's all about winning from the bottom up. Yeah, and that's funny because you really were kind of ahead of your time with that because now, particularly if you look at the surge and the war in Afghanistan, it's all centralized in smaller teams and giving more decision-making responsibilities at the bottom. That's right. And it's not only the decision-making, it's the skill. We had done a reasonable job of basic training, taught people how to shoot a rifle, how to march, how to put on a gas mask, throw a grenade, uh, run an obstacle course, load a pack, march. Uh, but it wasn't enough. You had to do team training. So you had to put four or five people together and they had to work as a team. That's what the Germans learned in World War I. Really? We didn't learn it. Yeah. We didn't learn it in Normandy. After the Normandy invasion, when our troops tried to fight through the hedgerows of Europe, they had a terrible time against these very skillful disciplined, effective German infantry squads. Each man in the squad knew what he was going to do. If they saw you, one guy looked left, one guy looked right, one guy threw the grenade, one guy called a mortar in. I mean, everybody had his duties as part of a team. And what we've emphasized now is team training at this low level. So you have to have the individual skills. You have to put it together in a team. You have to give the team the initiative. And if you're the commander at the top, you've got to give them the resources they need to win. Well, you know, I'll tell you, you know, if anyone talked to you for five minutes, they could tell you're a West Pointer. <laughs> you love military strategy, backwards and forwards. Do you have anyone who's a particular hero of yours? Oh, General Eisenhower. Really? Well, I think Ike was a great president. Now, Ike was a, Ike was a very, very smart man who didn't get into the First World War. Patton got there. Patton got himself shot up trying to run yeah. tanks in, <laughs> in October of 1918 and evacuated from the battlefield. Ike never got there. 
And so maybe Ike felt he'd been handicapped all of his military career, but he was a very smart, very patient, very personable um, champion bridge player and poker player. At one point they told him, Ike, you can't play any more poker with people. You're taking money from everybody on this camp. Stop playing poker. You're making them mad, and you do it so gracefully that they don't even understand they're losing. So, I mean, he was he was a real diplomat with interpersonal relationships. Yeah, and he and could manage difficult he personalities. those personalities. <laughs> yeah. But you see, he also, he got a lot of credit for that in World War II, but what he didn't get the credit for is what he showed as president. He's a man who had a structure and a strategy and a way of looking at the world and framing it. And he announced that strategy in his inaugural. He said, Democrats and Republicans don't agree on everything, but we can agree that beyond our borders, we're seeing the ultimate evil. He was talking about yeah. communism, the war in Korea, the threats in Europe. And he said, Democrats and Republicans have to work together despite our disagreements at home to bring safety to America abroad. That fundamental insight and strategy is what every other Cold War president used. It was the idea of politics yeah. stopped at the water's edge. Yeah, and do you think we're losing that now? Well, I think we, when we defeated the Soviet Union um, in the Cold War, we lost our adversary. And when you lost mm -hmm. your adversary, you lost your strategy. Yeah. So we went through the 1990s. We wrote a national security strategy. Um, we called it a strategy of engagement and enlargement. And some people thought it sounded like an advertisement for a men's pharmaceutical product. <laughs> yeah, but, but it was the best we could come to deal with the challenges of the post-Cold War world. And it was a good strategy for us, but it didn't convey to the American people. So after 9-11, everybody got on the, on the bandwagon of, hey, let's go, let's go after Saddam Hussein. 80% of the American public wanted an invasion of Iraq. The newspapers wanted it, the press, the journalists. And unlike the Gulf War, this time uh, the armed forces were a lot more media savvy, so they embedded journalists and took them along so they would be friends. And um, it only carries you so far because if you don't <laughs> yeah. have the right strategy, if you haven't thought through the problem, you won't ultimately be successful. Yeah. Well, you were in charge of the first hot war after the Cold War, the war in Kosovo, when you were Supreme Allied Commander of NATO there. Um, we've all heard of the atrocities that were committed by the Serbs against the Albanians under Slavodan Milosevic. What kinds of things did you see on the ground there? Well, it was difficult to see things on the ground because we weren't on the ground. Right, right. that's and, true. Um, yeah, that's true. So <laughs> we saw it yeah. up front. You know, um, I was actually in what you might call six years of continuous political military combat. Started when I got to the Pentagon in 1994 as the director of strategic plans and policy, and I was tasked uh, as part of my duties to write the strategy paper for what we were going to do in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Uh, it turned out nobody had been there. And how can you write a strategy paper about stuff you've never seen? So one of the my fellow staff officers said, Wes, he said, I advise you to stay away from Bosnia because everybody who's ever gotten entangled there has lost his career. But um, I marched to the sound of the guns. So I, I, went, to, uh, I went to see 
the leaders. I met General Mladic. I met President Izabegovic. I met Prime Minister Salidic. And uh, I walked the trench lines in the Muslim trenches above Sarajevo. I saw how poorly they were constructed, how poorly equipped and trained the Muslim soldiers were. Um, I met with, uh, with uh, Mladic in his headquarters in Banja Luka. Uh, we talked about peace. Uh, we, he told me about his mentality. I, I, I took copious notes, by the way, <laughs> because it was outrageous. Really? The things he said, and I wanted to be sure I recognized him. And I used that information to formulate America's strategy going forward. And I Interesting. came back to Washington. Of course, you know, I'd met with the enemy. Uh, somebody wrote a letter to the president, said, you should fire that man, fire him. <laughs> He's been over there talking to the enemy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because Well, how do you defeat the enemy the if you don't know the enemy? To learn. Yeah. So that was 94 and uh, I participated with Richard Holbrook in his delegation. Um, I actually, with some help from some of my team in the Pentagon, we wrote the military annex, um, and we wrote the police annex that provided the security foundation for the Dayton peace talks. And we negotiated it, and we ended up negotiating the fine details on the map as well. And uh, and then I went back as NATO commander a year and a half later, and I had to actually implement the agreement that I had negotiated, <laughs> and it ended up in a fight. So I had many, many meetings with Slobodan Milosevic, and and um, and I got to know Europe very well. I got to know him very well, and ultimately, really? uh, we defeated him in the seventy-eight day air campaign. It's the only political military operation, other than Desert Storm, since the end of World War II, that you can say um, worked out. Uh, the way it was planned to be. Yeah. Uh, Operation uh, Just Cause in Grenada was good, uh, and uh, op- uh, and in Panama was good. We did well on those, both those operations, um, uh, and we won. And this one was one that we won. Um, what, but Iraq hasn't worked out that way because we didn't think through the problem. What was your impression of Slobodan Milosevic's in, a, in those meetings when you talked to him and got a sense of the man? Well, Milosevic, was a, he was a lawyer. He was well-educated. Um, he wasn't an athlete. He'd been trained uh, and gone through the staff college as a reserve officer, so he knew something about weapon systems. He knew a lot about how to bully people, but he ultimately knew he held a weak hand. And uh, when you look in somebody's eyes and you, you read them, you know you can beat them. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back to talk more with General Wesley Clark. Back in just a moment. Hey, folks. Do you like reading but find it harder and harder to make time to curl up with a good book? Well, there's a solution. Give audiobooks a try. They're perfect for your commute to work or working out at the gym or relaxing in the bath or any time, really. And right now, you can take an audiobook for a spin with a special promotion just for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics to get a free 30-day trial and download any of Audible's 180,000 titles for free. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And now back to the show. 
We're back, and today I'm talking to General Wesley Clark. So, General, somewhere I read that uh, when you were there in Bosnia with Secretary of State Richard Holbrook driving along a mountain road, you guys had a bit of a close shave. What happened there? Well, we um, actually we lost three members of our team, unfortunately, and oh. and had a couple seriously injured in addition because um, we couldn't get into Sarajevo to see the Bosnian leadership. It was surrounded and isolated by the Serbs, and we couldn't get free passage from Milosevic. I think he wanted to obstruct us, to be honest with you. So we took yeah. helicopters to the top of Mount Igbon, which is a big uh, mountain overlooking Sarajevo, and there was a route down Mount Igmon that was controlled by the Bosnians through Serb territory. And um, when we got off the helicopters, um, I was met there. I was a three-star general, so uh, we, the Army liaison there met me with a Humvee. Uh, and uh, the French then met everybody else and put them in a French armored vehicle. Our Humvee wasn't armored. So... Um, I put I had an extra seat. I thought it'd be more comfortable for Richard Holbrook to get in with me. So he and I got in the back of the Humvee, and um, the armored vehicle, being a lot bigger and heavier, it broke through the shoulder of the road, and it rolled side over side, 400 meters down a hillside, and um, and uh, the people inside were thrown thrown around like uh, like popcorn, mm-hmm. and the three were killed. The vehicle caught fire. The ammunition exploded. Uh, We got a couple of people out. uh, And Holbrook and I were on top of the mountain. We didn't see it. They were behind us. And uh, we had to go down and try to police it up afterwards. But it was a devastating blow to our effort. Yeah, I was reading that you got out of the car and rappelled down the mountain. I I didn't. Okay, that's a a bit of exaggeration here. (laughs) I did uh, run down the mountain. Okay. uh, But I got there too late. And Milosevic, he was never executed for his war crimes. Uh, you have war criminals like Ratko Mladic, who somehow was able to escape justice for years. They only caught him in 2011. I mean, that's longer than it took to catch Osama bin Laden. How were so many of these war criminals able to escape justice for so long? Well, they escaped justice because we didn't, um, we didn't finish the job in Bosnia. In the summer of 1995, the Croatian military launched a a major military operation called Operation Storm, and they swept the Serb inhabitants and their militias out of the border region of Croatia. They continued to fight into Bosnia, and we stopped that diplomatically. Now, it might have stopped of its own accord, but had we let it go forward, it might have brought different results. As it was, um, at the end of the Dayton peace talks, and even at the end of the Kosovo air campaign, you still had in power in Serbs, Milosevic and his group, and some people who were even more um, hateful and right-wing than Milosevic. And these people were still in power. They had simply lost. But Serbs have lost throughout history, in battle after battle after battle. As they will tell you, they are the greatest victims of history. (laughs) They are Christians. They have fought against the Turks for hundreds of years to protect all of Christendom, and no one respected them, and no one came to their assistance. And they were America's greatest friends during World War II, uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, 
the fact that they lost, it wasn't devastating. They weren't the Golden State Warriors who expect <laughs> to win every game. You know, these guys yeah. were losers, and uh, they lost. And what happened to us that they continued to shelter these people with these bad ideas. And uh, we did what we could to arrest the war criminals and bring them to trial. Milosevic was arrested by his own people right. after he tried to falsify the results of an election. He was taken to The Hague, and he had always had bl- high blood pressure. And so he figured, he read the rules very carefully. He would. He's a lawyer. <laughs> and he recognized that under the International Criminal Tribunal, they can't try you if you're ill. Ah, so yeah. he didn't take his blood pressure yeah. medicine. He said, oh, you must release me. I'm so sick. I <laughs> have high blood pressure. They said, ah, please take your medicine. That reduced the blood pressure. So uh, he was going to be tried. So this uh, game went on. As the trial continued, he went to the Russians and said, can't you give me something to block this? They make me take this medicine every day. They're watching me. Give me some other medication that will counteract its effects. Yeah. So they did, and they, and they overdosed him. And so he died of high blood pressure. Well, that's poetic justice, well, I guess. <laughs> it is. I mean, he's a guy who always tried to beat the system, and eventually mm-hmm. he got beat. Yeah. Well, after you retired, you said that you set three goals for yourself in civilian life. Turn $40 million in the business world and practice philanthropy to become an adjunct professor and to become a professional golfer. Uh, where do we stand on those? Well, the golf is the worst. Okay. I mean, I just, I'm traveling four or five days a week. I just can't play more than two or three times a month. And you're not going to be, when you start golf at 50, you're not going to be a professional golfer at 70 playing two or three times a month. But it's been a great quest well, anyway. Well, I ran um, into Jordan Spieth the other day, and he said he's worried about you. <laughs> he sees you coming up on his I'll heels. Bet. I'll bet. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then we, um, the, the teaching, I've done some teaching at UCLA with the Burkle Center, and that's good. And um, I've, I've learned the business community. I haven't, I, I, I just threw the number out there as a, as a joke more or less, yeah. just to sort of say, here's something I'm trying to do as a joke. I mean, it's not a serious thing, but I would like to earn enough money that I could be a serious philanthropist because yeah. I see people who've done that and they make a difference in other people's lives. And yeah. But, you know, you make a difference in people's lives if you can bring projects in that create jobs. And so I'm an investment banker. I've got my own investment bank. I've been really? on 18 publicly traded companies' boards of directors. Wow. I've been associated with maybe 90 companies in the 16 years I've been out of the military. I've seen good companies and bad companies. I, I look at it. It's, it's my reputation and my skills and I put them to work and it's like having a venture fund. Some people you can help, some people you can't, you know, a yeah. VC doesn't make a profit on every investment and some don't make it. Uh, they try to do the best judgment they can, but they can't do it. When you're on the board of directors, you're even further removed. So you try to help these companies. Some you can help, some you can't. Uh, but it's been a great learning experience. And I have my investment bank, and we're raising money to do real projects, a gas-to-liquids plant, a, a harbor, a port, uh, a hotel, construction projects that will actually move the earth and create jobs and, and, and bring wealth to the country. And that's what we want to do. Yeah, and another thing that didn't make your list of those three goals was you actually ended up running for president in 2004. Was that experience what you thought it would be? It was one of the best things I've ever done in my life, and I'm so grateful that I was given that opportunity. It's a gift. 
Because uh, every time it seems that every time a military commander runs for public office, it always seems like it wasn't quite what they thought it would be. <laughs> you know? Well, because it's such I mean, a different experience. Look, politics is like yeah. any other endeavor in life. Uh, you're not going to be a great artist if you've never painted before. Yeah, and you're not going to be a great conductor the first time on stage. Yeah, and 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 you're not going to be uh, a great businessman if you've never done business, unless somebody gives it to you. Mm-hmm. So. Unless somebody had given me the presidency, it was going to be a long shot. But um, there was a lot to be learned in the field of politics. And uh, I had a wonderful opportunity, and I'm so glad I was given that opportunity. I'm so grateful to the people who supported me because I got to learn so much about America. And it's helped me in the 10 years or 11 years since that campaign was over to be able to give more back. Mm -hmm. I, I know... 30 states. I went to 30 states in 90 days. I met people, ordinary working people. I met people at the top, senators and governors and congressmen, and saw their perspectives in a way I never could have as a retired military officer. And then to go out on the hustings and go door to door and have people tell you their life stories, which they do when you're running for president, and you realize what America is really all about. It was an eye-opening experience, and it was, I was incredibly fortunate to have had that experience. Do you think you'll run for office again down the future? Well, never I, say I never, never ruled it out, but, I mean, the opportunity wasn't there in 2007. Right. And, or but Senate or and, governor? Or, uh, I was asked know. to run for governor a couple of times, yeah. um, but I wanted to try my hand in the private sector because I wanted to be able to be more creative. Yeah. And uh, so— you know, I started in the business community when I first got out of the military. I did the detour to run for the presidency. I thought, you know, just go back, get to work, take care of your family's finances for your future, and uh, and do something that's creative in business so you understand what America's really about. America's really not about the politics. It's about the business. There were a number of generals who said that they were very concerned about Trump because you know, some things that he said would probably amount to war crimes. And some, a number of generals signed a letter saying that an officer would probably have to stand down if Trump gave him those kind of orders. Would you agree? Donald Trump says a lot of things for exaggeration. Yeah. Uh, if he were to be elected, I think the military would, you know, we've all taken an oath in uniform to uphold the Constitution of the United States and obey the officers, the orders of the officers appointed mm-hmm. over us. And uh, that means we're loyal to the commander in chief yeah, and to the Constitution. So going to take the orders that are lawful orders. Right. But some of the do some of the things that he's talking about, if, if those were handed down to you as a general, would you consider those unlawful orders? Well, they'd have to be they'd have to be lawful orders to yeah. be obeyed. Yeah. And if they weren't, if they didn't pass that, then they wouldn't be obeyed. But, yeah. you know, when he gets in office, he's going to have, a, if he gets in office, he's going to yeah. have a very hard time giving unlawful orders because he's going to be surrounded by a bunch of lawyers who are going to say, Mr. President, you can't do that. Yeah. And if well, he tries to fire him, he'll just be enmeshed in a series of legal, you know, uh, in, yeah. uh, proceedings for the entire term of his presidency. I think he's smarter than that. Yeah. So... Hmm. Um, I'm not supporting him. I've known Hillary for a long time, right. but I do think this about Donald Trump. I think he's, he's exploited the poverty of ideas and inspiration that have plagued the Republican party. Yeah. 
Republican Party's been fighting a rear guard action against demography for 30 years. And uh, they went to value, value voters. So it was about guns, God, gays, women saying, oh, I want to say Merry Christmas. Okay, 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 great. <laughs> but no one's stopping her from yeah. saying Merry Christmas. The point is that, that these people were uh, middle class, lower middle class, a lot of white Americans, men, women, who voted for these um, values at the expense of their economic interests. During this period of time, wages didn't go up as much as CEO salaries and, and dividends, and uh, unions were progressively weakened. And the kind of protections that could have been given to workers were, were watered down, like in the 2005 Bankruptcy Act. Uh, but they still supported this party, the Republican Party, a lot of people did, because of its professed values. I think this is the end of that. Yeah. If you're looking at Ted Cruz as he's struggling here, he can he can no longer credibly, you know, cite Jesus and 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 gays and the perils of gay marriage and values as the justification for a campaign. He has to come to terms with the economic realities, mm -hmm. and uh, I think that's what Trump is going to bring to to the fore for the Republican Party. So I think in terms of democratic processes, it's a good thing. Well, I know you have to go. Uh, best piece of advice anyone ever gave you? Don't take it personal. <laughs> That's good stuff. Words to live by. Well, General Wesley Clark, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Ben. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks again to General Wesley Clark for coming on the show. You can learn more about his consulting firm at WesleyKClark.com. And you can follow General Clark on Twitter at, at General Clark. Again, don't forget to vote for Kickass Politics for Best News and Politics podcast at podcastawards.com. You can vote again every day between now and June 12th. So again, go to podcastawards.com and vote for Kickass Politics in the category of Best News and Politics podcast. Please subscribe to Kick-Ass Politics on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. And you can also help us reach our fundraising goal for the year and get rewarded by donating to our Patreon campaign at patreon.com backslash kickasspolitics. Follow us on Twitter at at kapolitics or visit Kick-Ass Politics on Facebook. And while you're there, recommend Kick-Ass Politics to your friends on your social media. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass Politics. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.